over 50% of the hydrogen produced will be green hydrogen by the time we get to 2050. We're estimating about $60 trillion or $50 trillion are needed in order to meet energy demand globally through 2050. That's not achieving net zero, by the way. We need a lot more money um, thrown at it at the system if we're going to meet net zero. If you go back and have a look at you know, developed world's energy consumption off the grid, it's been declining on a fairly linear basis you know, for the last sort of 10 years or so. And that's been achieved essentially by energy efficiency. Almost 150 million people, or half the population of the U.S., live in areas where air pollution levels are high enough to negatively impact health and the environment. Carbon emissions from ICE vehicles are a major source. In 2020, petroleum exports surpassed imports in the U.S. Transport accounts for 30% of the country's total energy needs and 70% of U.S. petroleum consumption. Put simply, the reliance on fossil fuels must be curtailed. We know this. It's imperative to decarbonize and create reliable, cost-effective alternative energy sources. So where do we look? We've got established sources like wind and solar, even nuclear. What other ingredients can we add to the mix? Today, we'll be putting our chips down and betting on an alternative fuel that can be produced from a range of homegrown resources. Clean, economical production and distribution of this fuel could power the industrial sector. It is, of course, hydrogen. The energy in just over two pounds of hydrogen gas is about the same as in a gallon of gasoline. It all sounds great, but is it all as it seems? All the focus in the industry and the media is on the green and the blue. These yield 11 million Google results against 95,000 for gray and 49,000 for brown. Great news, we must be producing green hydrogen in the majority. Wrong. Only 0.04% of hydrogen produced is green. 96% is gray or brown, produced for use in oil refineries and manufacturing ammonia. Today, we look at the agenda of governments worldwide to turn this ship around. Do plans even exist to do so? Is the focus on green hydrogen production a distraction from the true industry practices? The first question to answer is, can we rely on hydrogen as a viable alternative source to energy? Once we answer that, we need to ask, are we, and can we, produce hydrogen sustainably? At the moment, it's not looking good. I'm David Banmiller, and welcome to the first Interchange episode of 2023. I'm joined today by Luke Johnson, Managing Director and Founder of H2 Green. They're a UK-based company aiming to build green hydrogen production hubs across Europe to produce and deliver hydrogen where needed. Luke is a serial entrepreneur with experience in energy and technology across Australian, U.S., German, and U.K. markets, with an Entrepreneur of the Year nomination in EY's competition. Luke, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, David. Pleasure to be here. Also joining us on the show is Melanie Vargas. Melanie is head of hydrogen consulting at Wood McKenzie and brings experience across the global energy value chain. Melanie, welcome. Thank you. All right, Melanie, I'll start with you, and let's kind of back up and start from the beginning. But um, what does current production of hydrogen look like right now, the various colors and where it's, where it's used? Well, the U.S. produces about 12 million tons per annum of hydrogen today. 
About 8 million tons per annum of that are gray hydrogen production, which is SMR hydrogen. And another 3.5 million tons per annum are byproduct hydrogen from petrochemical processes and other processes that produce hydrogen. Um, as of 2022, Woodmax's latest market tracker for hydrogen shows about 0.2 million tons per annum are what we call low carbon hydrogen, so blue or green. But that's going to need to change pretty quickly. Um, so, and, and that's what we're expecting is that long term that the, the mix will shift, although today is predominantly gray. Luke, hydrogen is a hot topic these days. Uh, a lot of people are talking about financial institutions, industry players. What role does it play in solving some of the problems in getting to net zero? So hydrogen today is, is a hugely important feedstock in, in a whole bunch of chemical processes, you know, as Melanie referenced inside that. So, so we've got a very important phase of decarbonizing that hydrogen production and consumption to start with. But I think the, um, the reason why there's so much excitement around hydrogen is what it could offer in the future. You know, what other alternatives can it do in some of the decarbonization journeys that we're on? And, uh, you know, some of the exciting locations for that are, are really around alternative ways of powering particularly hard to decarbonize industries, um, things like commercial fleet transports that need to have up and running vehicles constantly in order to make their money. Um, and I think we're seeing, you know, a, a lot of potential in that space. So Luke, why, why H2 Green? I mean, what was the key driver uh, to start the company? Yeah, so so H2 Green, um, essentially my background is actually petroleum. I've, I've spent 20 years um, in oil and gas as a geologist. And, and um, you know, in geology, it's very much a location-based science. Uh, H2 Green was formed because we saw the same kind of needs of those location-based analytics because hydrogen is quite a different beast if it's going to be produced around the world. Uh, what it does is it essentially cuts us out from having um, you know, any requirement to, to transport that hydrogen potentially. Uh, if we can produce it at the locations that it's being consumed using electricity and water, um, you know, that really changes the, the whole future of, um, of, of a very important energy vector. And, and we saw that opportunity and created H2 Green to, um, to get after that as a project development business. And Melanie, you know, as I mentioned, there's a, a lot of talk around hydrogen these days, but it still seems to be a relatively small market. Uh, what do you see as some of the key uses going forward for hydrogen and how it can be really impactful in the energy transition? I believe hydrogen could really play a role across all of the four major energy demand sectors, but in subsectors similar to what Luke was saying that are hard to decarbonize or hard to abate. So of course, in industrial energy and feedstocks, that's that's a really tough sector to decarbonize with renewables or electrification. So that hydrogen makes sense displacing fossil fuels in, for example, cogen or high heat processes, or displacing hydrogen consumption that's already occurring in places like refineries, ammonia, methanol production. So that to me is a primary anchor customer for any hydrogen hub. Um, in transportation, you know, battery electric vehicles will dominate in the passenger fleet and potentially in commercial applications that are shorter haul. But in long haul heavy duty trucking, uh, fuel cell electric vehicles make sense due to the sheer cost of the battery, the weight of the battery, and the downtime needed to charge a truck. In residential commercial heating, heat pumps will dominate, I, I believe, um, for the most part in terms of decarbonizing uh, what's today mostly gas heating. 
But potentially in regions where there's a lot of seasonality, very, very cold winters, or the grid can't handle the additional load in the winter, it's, there's potential for hydrogen to play a role in some of those regions. And then in power, you know, if you look at outlooks from 2019, power was not even on anybody's radar as a potential end use for hydrogen. But today, uh, the DOE's latest uh, draft roadmap actually includes what looks like seven to eight million tons per annum for energy storage. And there's about a dozen projects in the U.S. that are being developed with turbines that are hydrogen-ready turbines that will be blended first, but then could go to 100% hydrogen combustion. So there's potential for hydrogen to play a role as an energy storage mechanism and balancing grid and creating reliability as more renewables penetrate and create intermittency in the system. On the energy balancing part, um, so where it can play a role, I think one of the really exciting opportunities that we've got with hydrogen is grids around the world today, every grid out there is designed around um, a dispatchable power source. If you need more power, if a factory turns on and requires more power, they can spin up more energy. Um, simply following the frequency response. But moving to a non-dispatchable, renewables-dominated grid system, um, we're going to have an issue there where we either have to store very large amounts of energy um, in the form of of batteries or or chemical stores like hydrogen. But the other one is actually creating a demand-side response industry. And and there is some of that in the UK at the moment. We do have demand-side response, but that's essentially... The, the main users of that as a, as a monetary mechanism are cold storage where they can chill through down to minus 60 Celsius and as long as it doesn't go above minus 15 Celsius, um, the food is still good. So they're banking cold essentially. Um, but most other uh, consumers of electricity, particularly large consumers, don't have that kind of flexibility. And one of the places that a, a green hydrogen system could um, play an important role in, in grid balancing is if we, uh, particularly with policy, mandate that those uh, green hydrogen systems actually play a role in those arbitrages. So the systems that we're building are are very large scale, but they, um, so we don't want to turn them off and on, but we can cycle them. We can increase their load factor. We can decrease their load factor. And that could potentially be externally controlled by by a grid operator uh, such that we can actually help smooth that curve out. Uh, and be part of a solution rather than creating additional stress to the system. And, and I think that's a big issue that's about to be faced. You know, Melanie referred to quite accurately that, um, you know, that, that there's issues around grid infrastructure. Um, those grid infrastructure challenges are going to be another reason why battery electric will, will struggle in certain locations. Simply being able to plug in that many vehicles in one, at one time to charge during a point of convenience when people want to recharge um, our grids can't take that. The simple distributed um, substations that are out there won't be able to deal with that fact. So there is a big shift that's needed to, to achieve electrification um, in any sh- way, shape or form. Uh, and I think hydrogen has an ability to help us lower the capex of that journey. Great points. One of the current challenges around hydrogen being discussed is is the infrastructure and, and the transportation of hydrogen. Um, where are we on that journey, and where do you think the investment needs to go to make sure that we have reliable, cost-effective transportation of hydrogen where it's needed? And I guess, Luke, I'll start with you. Thanks, David. Um, that's a really good question, and I think this comes back to our approach on, on doing regional hubs and a location-based approach to us uh, with, when we come to locating where we want to build hydrogen. You know, in essence, when we're out talking to customers, we tell them, if you give me a hose pipe and a PowerPoint, I can make you hydrogen wherever you need. 
Uh, petroleum has been different to that. We've had to pull it out of the ground wherever we've discovered it. We've moved it by large volume to a location to refine it, and then we've distributed that to where the customer needs are. Uh, what we have with hydrogen is potentially a way to break some of that chain. You know, over half of the um, the maritime fleets in the world that are out there moving at the moment are moving petroleum products. So having an option where we don't need to necessarily ship that globally, um, you know, could be an, a very important piece in in the uh, decarbonisation journey. But when we look at moving hydrogen from where it's produced to where the customer needs, there's no getting away from the fact it's a very painful product to move about by comparison. It's it's low um, volume density means that it's uh, you know it's very inefficient to shift great distances. Ideally, we'd like to be in a situation where we have a good pipeline infrastructure because over time that will pay for itself. But in the short term, the challenge is going to be that the infrastructure and the demand um, won't align in terms of uh, economics. So we'll be seeing people moving around tube trailers that are highly inefficient when when trucks that should be able to move 40 tonne of product are only moving 500 kilograms of hydrogen um, instead. You know, and that's just not sustainable in the long run. So we have to move away from um, transportation wherever possible. Um, but over time, we want to see uh, national hydrogen grids to be developed. I'll just add in that the pipeline story is really important for the for, for market design and market formation. The ability for us to have a liquid market that moves beyond the bilateral agreements that we see today. So I agree with you that as we think about how markets evolve for hydrogen from, you know, everyone owning uh, all the way from production all the way uh, to the gate of the customer, that we start to think about things like open carrier pipelines and what that might mean in terms of pricing transparency and competition in the market. Uh, if so, so pipelines can play a really big role, and and so designing hubs around anchor customers, like industrial hubs that are near ports where you could deliver hydrogen to that anchor refinery or anchor petrochemical facility and also serve the smaller uh, uh, demand from, for example, transportation via trucks, uh, liquid trucks or gaseous trucks for hydrogen that are moving a shorter distance just to cre create more efficiency in the system. I think you know that that's a vision that I hope we get to for hydrogen because you're right that transporting long distances via a truck is, is not going to achieve the decarbonization goals that we're trying to achieve. In terms of the different colors, I mean, uh, of hydrogen production right now, uh, a lot of the talk is around green hydrogen, right? Because that that's going to be the future. Um, but it's also a small portion of overall hydrogen production right now. Uh, where do you see that going uh, in the future, uh, e even from a timeline standpoint? I mean, there's got to be a lot of investment uh, to help with the green hydrogen, a lot of the infrastructure build out. But Melanie, wh where do you see that the green hydrogen finally being able to displace or become a larger portion of the overall hydrogen production. So in Woodmax outlooks for the U.S., we actually get to a pretty substantial share. Over 50% of the hydrogen produced will be green hydrogen by the time we get to 2050. But blue hydrogen will be really important. Also in the U.S., we have a ton of gas. We have a ton of potential CO2 storage uh, in terms of geological formations here. We have existing infrastructure for CO2. So blue hydrogen will be important, particularly in the beginning for large-scale projects that require a consistent delivery profile. 
In terms of green hydrogen, it will be important. And if you look at the recent project announcements, the majority of our pipeline is green. And that's really driven by the way that the uh, 45V, the hydrogen production tax credit and the infrastructure, uh, I'm sorry, and the Inflation Reduction Act um, is structured to give a bigger incentive depending on the carbon intensity. So the lower your carbon intensity, the higher your incentive in that production tax credit. But we need to overcome some major challenges around manufacturing, scaling up, and also grid accessibility and our connections, land constraints around building all the solar and the wind that's required for the scale that's being targeted. Adding a gigawatt of wind in a coastal industrial hub could be quite challenging. So um, in those places, we might see more blue. Uh, I also think green... um, in terms of the reliability of delivering green and also ensuring that the carbon intensity is low, we'll need to figure out, are we grid connecting these electrolyzers and offsetting the emissions from the grid? Because if they're grid connected, they're not, they may not always be green producing electrolyzers. Or are we running them 30% of the time when the sun is shining or when the wind is blowing? So we have to figure out these designs. And in, in that second case, then we need storage. We need to be able to uh, overbuild these systems and then store the hydrogen so that you have a consistent delivery profile to your demand. If I can on that, I think there's an interesting difference potentially between the US and the EU um, in, in the general, in fact, the rest of the markets. There's a very good reason why, for example, Unconventionals has uh, really only taken off in the US uh, to any large degree. And that's the depth of infrastructure that you have around some of that, uh, the pipe work. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, as Melanie's correctly saying, even CO2 uh, movement infrastructure for oil, enhanced oil recovery, it, you know, it only exists to that scale in the US. In the European Union, um, the UK, and, and, and other places that are um, perhaps more densely populated than, um, than some of the reaches of, of you know, West Texas and, and, um, and, and the central regions of the US, we're going to have a, a challenge around getting public perception around CO2 sequestration across the line. So there's going to be certain amounts of places that will be difficult to achieve that. And that will drive, I think, green um, to develop in those kind of locations pretty heavily. Um, now, I think there's some very interesting technologies developing around CO2 disposal, particularly in some of the cement industries that will then probably help re-accelerate some of the blue. But I would agree with Melanie, what we're seeing is by far a dominance in the green at the moment. And certainly here in Europe, that's being driven heavily by, um, by the conflict in Ukraine, uh, driving gas prices through the roof. It's now more effective to be producing the hydrogen uh, from, from electrolytic sources than it is by using very expensive gas. The other, the other challenge I think um, that Melanie raised is the, is the question over whether electrolytic hydrogen is going to be grid connected or direct wire connected. You know, I'm a hydrogen developer. We've been looking at this in, in great amount of detail. I also have an oil and gas background, so familiar with running big pieces of equipment. The reality, getting away from perhaps some of the marketing, um, the reality is that turning those scales of equipment off and on again and being um, able to respond to the true, truly variable nature of, um, of renewables is challenging at scale. Uh, easier at smaller scale, more challenging when we start talking about really large hubs. So I firmly believe that we will see grid-based connection uh, and that will be subject to, you know, potentially, as you mentioned, Melanie, quite a variable carbon um, footprint when you look at the hydrogen at the end. But I think we need to be pragmatic about that. 
Um, we can try to sleeve the PPAs and, and try to show that we've got some accountancy around those electrons. But the reality being is that the hydrogen being produced, the electricity being used, um, in reality may come from grey sources at times. Uh, and, I, and I think that's just something that the market should be more aware of, that, that we need to be quite um, sensible about that journey. Luke, this is a really interesting topic that's really relevant at the moment in the U.S. as the rulemaking is occurring around the 45V. So do you have any thoughts on the stringency of the regulations around carbon intensity development? We saw the delegated acts get removed um, or at least at least paused in the EU. How, how should we measure and reward carbon intensity over time? Yeah, I, I love that question, Melanie. Um, and uh, sorry to hijack the podcast here, David, but um, the, the conversation, I think, is very relevant. From my perspective, you know, I've seen exactly what you're saying. The EU has made that flip around. And in fact, if you look now, Germany is now talking about bringing in blue hydrogen from Norway um, around the same kinds of comments that, that they've got to be pragmatic about what they can deliver. And I think pragmatism and education of the, of the politicians and policymakers is really important at this stage because there's hopes and dreams and then there's reality that we need to um, work within, particularly in the engineering side. Uh, so on the carbon intensity element, one point that I would like to, um, you know, have a look at is, you know, when we're trying to compare a, um, a green and a blue situation is how blue is the blue? You know, we start off gray and then we slowly add CO2 sequestration or CO2 disposal of some percentage over time. So I think there needs to be some metrics held, you know, fairly firm on the early phases of that to make sure that that the blue hydrogen projects are truly blue and, and they're not just paying for themselves by being grey for 10 or 15 years. Equally on the green projects, they need to show accountancy around how they're going to help support the build out of more renewable assets. We don't want to see green hydrogen projects come on, consume all of the renewable energy that's out there and leave everyone else using grey for their for their home power. That's It's self-defeating at that purpose. Uh, what we really need to do is, is be able to help people uh, you know, encourage the development of those alternative energy sources. And hydrogen needs to be part of that mix and, and part of that journey. Yeah, great. And, and don't worry, I mean, you, you guys are the experts and the podcast is all about listening to your insights and, and thoughts. Uh, and so absolutely appreciate that. You, you both mentioned uh, a number of times GRID. And, you know, last month we had the Grid Innovation Summit uh, in Phoenix that I was able to join and, and talk to a number of, of brilliant people with great ideas around grid innovation and, and upgrade. But one of the things that's very clear about, about the grid is it's very slow moving uh, on the improvements. What do you think, Luke, are, are some of the important things that need to be done immediately to help with the, the hydrogen connection and just enhancing the grid to support the energy transition? David, that's an excellent question. And I think I'm really afraid that that's something being overlooked globally at the moment. Um, and it's being overlooked for, I think, a pretty simple reason. If you go back and have a look at, um, you know, developed world's energy consumption off the grid, it's been declining on a fairly linear basis, um, you know, for the last sort of 10 years or so. And that's been achieved essentially by energy efficiency. People switching over to LED bulbs, um, you know, getting rid of the old CRT televisions, all of those kinds of um, you know, enhancements over time have been lowering the grid's uh, total load over a period of time. So there's been chronic underinvestment during that journey. Uh, they haven't needed to upgrade. The urgency, though, 
is that we're moving from centralized, really large scale um, points of production of, of electricity that are then distributed outwards in a, in a mono direction into a system that needs to be able to accommodate incoming energy from lots of different sources. Uh, in the UK, for example, we're hearing in places where a new generation grid connection is not going to be considered until 2030 in some of those regions. So that means there's, there's actual renewable sites viable economically that will not be allowed to be added to the grid because they simply can't uh, take it. And, and that's the grid is not designed to be receiving energy from all of those different locations. And, and so we urgently need a, um, a, a revision over the, the energy design to make it, it more um, uni, uh, bi-directional rather than unidirectional in the energy flow. That's right, Luke. Transmission and distribution will be really key. Uh, investments. When I look at the Woodmac investment horizon for our base case energy transition outlook, we're estimating about $60 trillion or $50 trillion are needed uh, in order to meet energy demand globally through 2050. That's not achieving net zero, by the way. We need a lot more money um, thrown at it at the system if we're going to meet net zero. Of that $50 trillion, 60% of that needs to go to power generation and transmission and distribution. And the, ro- and the role of transmission and distribution in that investment need is about half in the beginning, and then it grows to be more than half by the time we get to 2050. Essentially, if we're bringing on all this new generation and, and all these new energy sources, we really do need to think about how we're going to connect the grid and move the electrons from supply to demand. And that's really challenging, Luke, when you have kind of a system that's going in multiple directions. It, it absolutely is, um, and it's, it's something that, that we constantly butt up against as a developer um, where, where we, we identify almost all of the, uh, the, the essential elements to make a viable project and then find that there are challenges um, around electrical infrastructure that, that you simply didn't expect would be there. Uh, this, but this, again, I think comes back to you know, looking at it in a different light rather than thinking that you know, hydrogen should be 24-7 at 100% capacity factor using that um, demand side response. In fact, if we could encourage policy to make um, it advantageous for people to be designing demand side response capabilities into new electrical infrastructure, hydrogen or any other heavy uh, user of electricity, um, you know, that, those kinds of solutions will help us lower the cost of upgrade because we can we can design in more flexibility. And, and I think you know, that part is, is perhaps somewhat hidden from policymakers. They're not really aware of the depth of that kind of challenge. Um, the other aspect that I think is, is really important in this journey, and I, I don't know, Melanie, whether you've got any um, you know, insight into this from the Woodmac perspective, but even simply when, we, when the world starts to really get after this electrification, the supply chain for, for you know, the substation equipment, transmission equipment, distribution equipment, um, is very limited because these grids are not often upgraded. And if all of the world starts to turn on a journey of, of modernizing their um, national grid system, um, first off, I think there's some wonderful business to be made there, but, but I think there's going to be some real issues around supply chain. Um, you know, and, and that's going to apply whether it's hydrogen, battery electric, or, or any new um, solution that comes along that requires electrification. Absolutely. We do foresee some supply chain constraints for major installments probably through the mid 2020s maybe 2026 time frame and that impacts the implementation of or the levelized cost of energy and the implementation of wind and solar 
Luke, you mentioned uh, policy, and also Melanie mentioned earlier the uh, Inflation Reduction Act uh, and its impact. What do you think needs to be done from a policy standpoint? I mean, you've got the Repower EU, number of other initiatives that are at least in discussions right now. But where do you think the focus needs to be to to help with the development and possibly alleviate some of the supply chain constraints that they just noted? No, good, good question there, David. When we come down to thinking about um, what policy can influence, I think most people immediately assume that they should just throw money at the problem. And, and I think we know that's not particularly efficient. Um, you know, I'd like to see industry step forward uh, and provide the funding rather than that. So policy for me, you know, as much as a business owner would always love to get non-dilutive capital into their assets, um, I would prefer to see um, more effort from the governments to create accurate policy around uh, safety regulation for hydrogen. It's quite a different gas uh, in terms of its buoyancy, um, it, its uh, combustion range and, and and variety of different kind of dispersion factors by comparison to natural gas. And yet we're seeing a lot of policy uh, borrowed from the natural gas industries and directly applied to hydrogen. So I think there's some challenges around that. Uh, the other aspect that makes it difficult from a developer's point of view is, is the regulation for um, planning approvals. Uh, what we need if we're going to try to do this, uh, you know, this journey towards net zero and, and keep this, this one degree target, um, in order to do that, we're going to need to move fast. Uh, we don't want to cut corners around safety in any way, shape or form, um, but we do need to have some of that kind of entrepreneurial spirit in even the, the planning groups to allow us to, to move things through uh, the journey and, and not just get held up by red tape. So I think that's an important aspect that government will need to lean on and that's a you know almost a um, a culture shift within what is essentially civil servants um, you know roles and responsibilities to say we're part of this rush to change from from what we are today as quickly as possible to a new energy solution, uh, and we need to be supportive of that journey. So I think policy can step in and really help with that. The U.S. policy is really supply focused. And that's great. I mean, it, it, it will incentivize and it does help to achieve fuel parity, but there's still a total cost of ownership and a conversion cost is embedded in that analysis to replace my furnace, to replace a turbine, to adjust distribution systems so that they can handle hydrogen if that's how we're moving it. So we need to think about how do we incentivize the switch on the demand side? And that's really critical because... The regulators, I have faith that the regulatory system will figure out a way to streamline and de-risk development because we've seen all the policy support being thrown on the supply side. But if you cannot get an off-taker to commit to take a, a significant share of your supply, you will not get funding from a bank. And so the DOE is giving capital via the infrastructure bill and, and the $8 billion set aside for hydrogen hubs. But a, a, a private or a commercial bank isn't going to enter into this really unknown kind of vague market that's just a lot of hype at the moment from their pers perspective if they don't see that you've got a significant volume of what you're going to produce secured in a firm long-term agreement with a, with a credible counterparty. That, that's a really great point, Melanie, and it's one that we butt up against all the time because we are out there looking um, for projects that we can privately fund. A big component of that, whenever you're talking to money, is uh, who's the customer uh, and how, how long does their commitment by comparison to the scale of investment that we're trying to achieve. 
Now, for us to target a low levelized cost of hydrogen to get towards that parity with um, with existing fuels, we need to build facilities at scale. But that means I have to have an enormous customer base. And a lot of the customers, particularly if we wanted to say, look at um, hydrogen for decarbonization of transport, commercial fleets. Uh, if you say to them today, I want you to sign into a 20-year agreement for a fuel price with me, um, they don't currently do that for more than a few weeks. Very few transport fleets actually bunker any kind of fuel or do any form of hedging. Uh, most of them just simply go and buy from the local uh, petrol station, gasoline, gas station, sorry. Um, and, uh, you know, they go out to do that using a fuel card. And, um, and, and really, a lot of the truck and commercial fleets, they stop where they want to get, um, you know, a particular uh, burger or, a, you know, what, what they feel is a nice greasy spoon. Uh, so that that journey doesn't really um, coalesce with the the requirements for us to have long term offtake contracts. So I agree with you. Developing the demand um, that is the critical element. And I've been in the UK, for example, petitioning government bizarrely to give more of the money to my customers than to than to us. Um, and l- luckily, they did hear it and they did create um, a, a uh, truck infrastructure fund, but it's not big enough. Uh, and the focus has been, I think, too heavily on the supply side. So, what can be done to incentivize that demand base? I mean, I mean, obviously, having that demand base grow with um, the willingness of creditworthy counterparts to enter into long-term contracts to help. I mean, it's very much like midstream business in the U.S. for for oil and gas, right? You get you get the long-term commitments, and then they build the pipeline uh, for the offtake. And we probably need something similar. Uh, for hydrogen, but how do you incentivize that? Whether it's from a industry side, government policy, you name it. Well, the, maybe it's a tough question. It is a tough question. It is because I, and no one wants to shut down their facility so that they can install a new turbine in, in their cogen system, right? Um, no one wants to shut down their facilities. Period. That's an economic loss. So we have to figure out a way to allow industrial consumers, but all consumers to make that switch in the least painful way possible, whether that's financing part of the cost for them, whether that's compensating them for the economic impact of having to shut down a facility. Um, You know, those are just, those are just some examples off the cuff of ways we can incentivize things for sure. The rebate programs that we see for residential commercial Consumers, we should think about ways that we can do that across all of the major consumption sectors. Yeah, I, I think um, an interesting aspect around that that, that you sort of uh, mentioned before there, David, was uh, around the way the financing structures are going to work. So for someone like myself, I need to essentially buy an enormous amount of electricity. And that requires good credit rating for me. If I want to negotiate a good price for my energy, they want me to um, to build in some hedge blocks into the way that we go about structuring our power purchase. But that then requires either my company to, to provide that credit rating or us to pass that through to the customer base. So I think part of the journey is actually figuring out um, what are the right financing structures that balance all of that around? How do we carry that through so that that some of this is balanced with the the offtake at, at the maturity that it's at versus the energy that's um, you know that needs to be purchased? Uh, and I think that part at the moment is also a, a somewhat of an unseen challenge um, in, in some of the hydrogen, particularly electric, electrolytical hydrogen um, production. Billy, you threw out um, 
some eye-popping numbers in terms of the investment needed uh, in this space uh, by 2050. Where are we now in terms of that investment? And what do we need to do to help encourage the, the needed investment going forward? Right now, there's a lot of intention uh, to, and there is capital flowing, but it isn't at all the scale that's needed in order to actually meet the numbers that we're talking about. And I'll just toss out a couple more numbers. The Department of Energy, they recently released a hydrogen roadmap. It's still in a draft mode, but it's a potential pathway to achieve net zero for uh, including hydrogen in that long-term vision. They're targeting 10 million tons per annum by 2030, 20 million tons per annum by 2040, and 50 million tons per annum by 2050. So what we're trying to do is replicate the existing volumes of production that we have in the U.S. in a carbon-intensive manner, in a, and now we need to do that in a low-carbon-intensive manner. And right now, the DOE has committed to $8 billion of uh, funding support for these hydrogen hubs. That's probably a drop in the bucket of the total investment that will be needed in order to achieve that 10 million tons by 2030. So it goes back to the points we've been making earlier around how do you fill the gap on the funding? It's potentially governments need to do more, industry needs to put in. We need to convince the banks that this is a long-term viable and reliable, secure investment for them where they will be able to exit or get the loan repayment that they're expecting and make a return. Um, so that's that's my view on the investment need. Um, and the other thing to think about is, in, in terms of the overall, you, you said eye-popping. I love that word, uh, David. This, the, the $50 trillion I was talking about, the Woodmac view is only a trillion globally is for hydrogen. So at the end of the day, the, what I'm talking about in terms of the hydrogen investment need is actually just really small compared to the overall investments that, that's needed for all of the energy systems to come together to meet net zero. Yeah, and I think I think Melanie, if we put the numbers out there, it's the, the oil industry is about six bit, uh, trillion a year in, in annual spend. So even though those are um, you know staggering numbers to think of from a personal perspective and a global perspective, they are actually achievable. Uh, I think one of the points that I've, I'm going to observe in the next you know ten years with great amount of interest is how um, venture. Uh, funds or more more venture orientated funds uh, will start to step into some of the infrastructure funds and and see how their view on return is going to look. So, oftentimes for what what we're looking at doing um, would be considered if it was any other way, um, very much an infrastructure investment. So you have very low cost of capital for an infrastructure type investment. And wind and solar is now at that level where you can get very very low costs. You can get a large um, debt ratio uh, for the development of your assets. But hydrogen at the moment is definitely in the equity space. Um, very difficult to try to achieve debt funding for really any of the projects that are out there unless you've got essentially 100% offtake under contract for probably um, you know, five plus years uh, you know, with, with the options to extend the contract. So uh, yeah, I, think, I think there's going to be some interesting movement, uh, particularly when you see that some of the, the heat on, on tech venture investment has, has perhaps started to cool. Um, and, and they're looking for a new home for money. So I, I could see a, you know, a real opportunity there 
um, out there for some of the bigger funds that that have been you know tech focused in in some of their um, speculative investment moving more into this energy transition in, in what would have traditionally been considered an infrastructure type business. Yeah, I've talked a lot uh, on this podcast about that financing gap is these in these developing technologies, right? Because you know they've got great ideas, they're building out, but they're not necessarily at a point to be able to service the debt. And so you've got a debt service issue, so it becomes an equity play. But at what point, then when they need the debt, can they actually get the debt? And there's that, there's that little gap that I find that you know some people are starting to come in and fill because they see that opportunity. Um, but we definitely need more of that. Yeah, and I think if you look at the design that we, you know, myself and and other um, hydrogen developers are typically going after, we're we're following something pretty similar to, um, you know, LNG type projects um, that that start off with a train. The first train may be, you know, marginally um, economic, but it underpins the development of of a second, third, fourth, fifth train, where you can then finance that after a proven revenue stream. Um, you know, at a much lower cost of capital basis, and that will be where the cream will reside uh, around those projects. And, and I think the interesting part is trying to keep hold of the uh, the project so that you can then have those subsequent investments really turn around, um, you know, large profits back to the um, to the investor. Uh, so, Luke, we've talked about a a number of different hydrogen powered technologies on this podcast. I mean, from airplanes to maritime fleets, automobiles, just in your view, what are some of the technologies that might be out there that you see as a really positive impact and something that's going to gain a lot of steam uh, in the next few years? Uh, that's, that's a great one. I, I love watching the hype, uh, quite honestly. And I, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's exciting to be in this industry, but it's also a bit nauseating sometimes when we're talking about how hydrogen's going to, you know, be used everywhere. Uh, look, I think I think the early phases, uh, you know, hydrogen makes a lot of sense for high utilization vehicles. Um, that may be heavy goods vehicles on long routes. It may be uh, light goods vehicles. So we've had um, quite a distinct turnaround in in some of our customer discussions, which we we didn't really target any light goods vehicle operators. Uh, when we first started our business, but they've come out and said we've tried battery electric, but our guys are out there moving around, going from customer to customer. You know, if this, we're thinking about like Scottish Water, for example, they here in in Scotland they've got a light good fleet that's absolutely enormous, and they have to move great distances. They can't turn up to someone's house and say, "Can I plug in and recharge, please?" Uh, so those kinds of journeys, um, you know, are, are going to, I think, accelerate, um, you know, in, into different areas. And I think the way I would view hydrogen is going to be much like petrol versus diesel or gasoline versus diesel, um, different applications for different uses. Um, there'll be some degree of preference, but, you know, in, in most cases, it's going to be driven towards um, those applications. I, I'd love to say I could see um, the marine fleet switching over, and I think they probably will, but it would be to ammonia rather than hydrogen. Um, but equally, uh, the long life of marine assets uh, will mean that that will probably be a lot slower than what people might expect. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, despite how many there are out there in these big heavy cargo ships and the tremendous amount of fuel that one of them burns in a, in a trip. If you look at its efficiency per kilogram of, of goods moved, they're actually very good and have a very low relative carbon footprint. Um, so we do talk about some of those um, those types of applications, and you know, rail is another application where you you know there there are a lot of diesel um, trains out there that people are looking at moving those to hydrogen fuel cells. 
Um, that sounds like a good idea, but they're very efficient users of energy. So you're not really addressing the carbon challenge, um, even though it feels like a really good um, Band-Aid effect. Where I would say those bigger vessels, though, have a role to play, particularly ones that have got more national control, so a lot of the rail systems um, you know, that, that are around the Europe area, um, by moving into hydrogen as an early adopter, they can create some of that base stimulus in demand. And that, I think, is an appropriate use um, for moving those fleets across, less so than saying that saving the, the, um, the carbon footprint and helping us with our, um, you know, with our climate goals. Luke, I love that you focus so much on transportation. And I think hydrogen can play a variety of roles there in many forms. If we end up in a situation where we have a lot of biofuels development, because drop-in liquid fuels are needed in the market because people are not willing to switch their ICE engines out for something lower carbon, hydrogen could be really important in, in unlocking the biofuel space. Uh, it could be that longer term, we have synthetic fuels or e-fuels produced from hydrogen in that scenario as well. Or we could have the uh, fuel cell electric vehicles. A lot of people at Woodmac are not super positive or bullish on, on the passenger fleet, but there is significant progress in the state of California with 13,000 vehicles on the road currently. So it, it, I, to me, that's an area where there could be a lot of disruption and the outcomes could be completely different. We just know that there will be a need for hydrogen in that sector. Melanie, I think that was a great point as well around the, um, the e-fuels because you know, an important feedstock in, in current day refining is hydrogen into that system to help us create more um, you know, alternatives to the hydrocarbon chains that we're pulling out, those, um, out of the ground. And you know, I think one of the challenges is, is trying to get people to understand that we're not or you know, we, the industry shouldn't be um, some kind of card-carrying fanatic about, um, about a particular molecule. Hydrogen is just one of the very many options that are out there. Um, and if we view it more as a feedstock in, into other solutions that are more easy to handle, um, that, are, that are able to do that, that would be fantastic. Uh, so I, I would see, you know, I think you're exactly right. It, it is just a, um, you know, another molecule. Uh, and what we want to be doing is using it in the most efficient way possible and, and you know, overselling um, uh, its capabilities all around into every possible industry, I don't think is helping anywhere. Yeah, right. I mean, there's no, there's no one magic bullet that's going to solve the energy transition. It's going to be a multitude of different technologies, use, sources, uses, uh, you name it, that's actually going to achieve net zero. It, it, like I said, it's not going to be one that, that we all bank on. And, and, and you're right. Look, I mean, there's a number of different ways that it can be done. And you mentioned, um, you know, the maritime fleets. We had Maersk on here uh, a couple months ago, and they're, they're actually transitioning all of their fleets to methanol uh, in, in a fairly short order, which, which was surprising, but they're already on track to, to achieve it given the, uh, the lifespan of their current fleet and, and how they're replenishing it. So there's going to be a lot out there that's going to uh, help achieve it, but it'll be interesting to see the journey and which ones gain a foothold more than others. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I see that. I see that as a real challenge, you know, but, but there's going to be a lot of um, crystal ball looking, I think, or there, there certainly is at the moment. Um, you know, I think um, I'm quite happy to sit and watch that develop. I know from my perspective that hydrogen as a feedstock is is an important element on that journey. So exactly what molecule is going into the vehicle or the you know or generating the heat or, or whatever whatever it's being used for 
I think is still open for options. Um, you know, and, and the best thing that we can all do is re remain with an open mind around around that journey because it it is a journey of compromise, uh, and it's important that we're going to be you know part of the solution and not just trying to to sell a particular thing. Well, listen, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I, I appreciate you both coming on the show and, and sharing your views and insights. Um, it's been great. So thanks. Thank you. Thank you, David. Much appreciated.